Being Black in America comes with its challenges. However, we understand that enlightenment through education is the oppressor's worst fear. By bridging the gap between academia and the people, our purpose is to equip you with knowledge that breaks down barriers during your journey towards truth and freedom. Welcome to the Black and Highly Dangerous Podcast. Yo, yo, Dev, what's up? What's up? Welcome to the new year. I know, right? 2020. Oh, my goodness. I cannot believe we are in a new year, but also a new decade. New decade, I know. Oh, man, I've been seeing all these posts of, like, the best, all these lists of, like, the best of the decade from everything, from, like, music, songs, sports, games, mm-hmm. all that stuff. Like, it's already in the 2020s. That's going to be even weird to say now, like, 2021, 2022. I'm just yeah. the 2010s and the teens. <laughs> oh, and the man. fact that, like, I don't know. It's just like time is so weird right now because to say like, oh, I started high school 20 years ago. Like, that's, <laughs> <laughs> it's like, dang, I don't feel that old, but I, I really am that old. Yeah. Yeah. We're getting there. And I, I was, I just keep thinking about like, you know, we have kids and then the kids are going to you know, get older and they be asking like, what year were you born? And it's going to be like <laughs> 1987 when I was born. <laughs> like, yeah, <laughs> that's going to seem so far away from, you know, their their relative idea of time uh, being back in the 1900s. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they'll be deep in the 2020s. So I don't know, man. But yeah, the roaring 2020. 20s, 2020 is a lot to happen. Um, you know, wishing everyone a safe holiday season and hopefully you get those resolutions in order. Any resolutions for you, Dev? Uh, no, like last year, I kind of, I don't even remember what I did last year, but I'm pretty (laughs) certain that I just wanted to focus on, you know, good habits that would push myself forward. And, you know, the same this year, I'm really proud of what I accomplished last year in terms of like, really just, these are the things I want to do. This is, these are the things that will help me be a better person and sticking to them, even if I need it breaks every now and then. And I kind of want to do the same, being healthy, reading every day, writing every day, and just seeing the person that I grow to from that. So not focusing on a end goal to say like, oh, I want to be this weight or I want to, you know, have X at the end of this date, but more so, oh, I'd like to have these habits and see what type of person I grow into. Yeah, yeah, Don, I feel you. Practicing those good habits are more sustainable, right? Um, and 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 just help you become more well balanced person overall. So I'm with you on that one. Yeah. What um, about you? Any any Um, yeah, nothing crazy, you know, other than just staying, staying positive. Uh, you know, I guess career goal would be towards the end of this year I'd be submitting my tenure packet. So that'd be a huge <laughs> Yeah. A huge thing. Uh, but I won't hear back until, you know, spring twenty twenty one. So but I'll be submitting the packing in 2020. So I guess that's a good thing. Yeah. And, and hopefully, you know, maybe I'm trying to think of probably getting the uh, first stab in home ownership and trying to get a house in 2020. We'll see what happens. Yes. Let's let's look at these goals, man. <laughs> let's try to reach these goals. Yeah. Trying to give me some property and stop, stop this apartment living. 
because I'm tired of it. I gotta be honest, I'm tired of apartment living. So, oh my goodness, I have the noisiest neighbors ever. I, that's why I want to get rid of an apartment. <laughs> I cannot deal with these people. Yeah, that's why we moved from my last place because uh, the neighbors above us was just too much. And so, when we moved into this place, we were like, uh, top four, please. I cannot handle living below folks anymore. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. But uh, but you know, more power to you, Dad. More power to our listeners. Hopefully, hopefully I got you at 2020 on the right start. And we're glad you're here to join us, you know, here again with BHD bringing in 2020, heading into our, you know, next month will be our what, three years in, right? Whatever. Yeah. Like, three years yeah. In. <laughs> that is that's crazy to me. First week of February, yeah. So we're about four weeks away from, uh, you know, three years, three year anniversary. So that's that's crazy, and I'm glad we always started it on Black History Month because one, I can always remember when our anniversary is, and it just feels right. Yes, <laughs> yes, it feels right. Black and Holly Dangerous celebrating, you know, Black History Month. So yes, yeah. yes, bring it all together. So. So good. So, you know, uh, we understand everybody's still in the holiday spirit, holiday season, getting the New Year's in. So, again, we're not going to start our interviews yet for a couple more weeks, probably. Uh, so for now, to be Daph and I. But with this episode, we're going to, you know, not really cover current events, per se, like we traditionally do and just get back to some more topic-oriented conversations. And so that's what we'll do this week and next week. And so for this week's episode, we're really going to focus and try to tackle and discuss immigration, naturally, because that is a huge topic of discussion uh, because of our uh, president, Trump. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> and hopefully that can be changed in 2020 as well, uh, that he won't be in office anymore, but that's to be determined. But because of him, tons of conversations surrounding immigration. And so we just want to kind of talk a little bit about the history of it, uh, talk about some of the recent things that have been happening with it. And of course, naturally dispelling some of the myths that have uh, come about because of immigration that we hear commonly a lot from our president as well. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> agreed. You know, it's one of those things where, you know, we see it. It's like at the forefront of everything. It's on news every day. It's on uh, Twitter, social media. It's a topic that is uh, probably feels very new. It feels like a very present issue. But, you know, as they say, we are a nation of immigrants, uh, some not so voluntary. Um, and the issues that we are dealing with, with the border, with um uh, patrolling and enforcement, they aren't new either, though. Um, and so this just is, like Ty said in episodes, to just really provide some insight into not only the history of it, but also the role that the U.S. government has played in our present day crisis, as they call it. Yeah, no, for sure. For sure. So let's let's hop right into it. So let's start, I guess, with talking about some of the history of immigration in this country. Uh, where do you want to start, Dave? Um, 
you know, probably start back in like, you know, the 18 or no, actually start at 1790. All the way back. (laughs) All the way back. Um, So actually it was uh, January 1776. Uh, Thomas Paine published a pamphlet, Common Sense, that argues for American independence. And, you know, that's when we got it, blah, blah, blah. Um, and, uh, he says Europe and not England is the parent country of America. This new world hath been the asylum for the persecuted lovers of civil and religious liberty from every part of Europe. So, you know, when you're thinking about like American independence, like the way they put it is just kind of like tying Europe to the U.S. and I guess white people to the foundation of the U.S. Of course. Of course. Of course. (laughs) And what's interesting is that in uh, 1790, Congress passed the first law about uh, who should be granted U.S. citizenship and the Naturalization Act of 1970 only allowed free white persons of good character who have been living in the U.S. for two years or longer. You know, those were the people who could apply for citizenship. So, so um, we definitely see it being very racialized. Early yeah. On. Early on, immigration uh, was very racialized. And, you know, when you think about some like the immigration uh, laws that started being passed in like the 1800s, like there was a Chinese Exclusion Act in the 1880s, I believe. Um, Yeah, there was a Chinese Exclusion Act of 1880. 82, which barred Chinese immigrants from entering the U.S. Um, mm-hmm. after, I believe, there had been a steady flow of Chinese workers who had migrated to the U.S. Mm-hmm. Um, the Immigration Act of 1891 uh, further excluded who could uh, live in the U.S., and it barred polygamists and people convicted of certain crimes or sick from disease. Okay. Okay. (laughs) Um, And of course, you know, what, what do you feel like is the symbol of immigration in the U S usually it's supposed to be um, what the statue of Liberty or like Ellis Island. Yeah. Ellis Island. So yeah. In January, 1892 Ellis Island opens up in the New York Harbor and the very first immigrant um, from County Cork in Ireland uh, immigrated through Ellis Island. So it's kind of like, you know, that's kind of the, the foundation and the history. But one thing that I thought was interesting is that, you know, again, we think about immigration and enforcement, or at least, well, I don't, I won't say it's me, but I'm pretty sure many people think about like immigration and enforcement as something that is fairly new. But in 1924, uh, the U.S. passed the Immigration Act of 1924, and that created a quota system based on guess what? Um Race, maybe? (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, pretty much. So under the quota system, the United States issued visas to 2% of the total number of people of each nationality, but it favored people from Northern and Western European countries. Um, And what 
just three countries. So Great Britain, Ireland and Germany accounted for 70 percent of all available visas Um, and immigration from southern, central and eastern Europe uh, was limited. And it completely excluded immigrants from Asia, aside from the Philippines, which was uh, an American colony. Mm, You know, this is it's funny because, you know, I'll, I'll even have students today just be like, when they try to talk about immigration, a couple of years ago, a student was like, yeah, you know, I don't understand. Like she was a white, white girl. And she's like, yeah, my, my family, my, my grandparents, my parents came here and they immigrated. She was like Italian. Um, mm. Like, you know, if they can do it, anybody can do it. But this is the missing component. Like one, this system was built for people that look like you to be a part of this country and assimilate very easily uh, compared to people of color who try to do it. It's not as easy. And they weren't even allowed to be considered immigrants or come to this country. Um, so it's always been set up in this in this way of like people from Europe, et cetera, have kind of had this open access uh, to, to becoming an American citizen more than other groups like Chinese and and now today the Mexicans and people from Central America, et cetera. I would also uh, suggest that that student uh, take a history lesson because at the turn of the century, Italian immigrants were treated horribly. They weren't (laughs) even considered like crime. Yeah, the Irish and Italians. There are books like I think there's a book how the Irish became white, how the Jews became white or how the Jewish became white. And I'm pretty sure I don't know if it's an essay or a book, but there's definitely how Italians became white um, because they were not always, you know, there were even racial slurs for Italians at the time because they were not considered white. So I would just really, really encourage that student to read a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> yes, for sure. It's how quickly you forget because you're you're looking at the America now where it's very, very easy for Italians <laughs> compared to when, yes, they first came in here and probably your grandparents. If you talk to them, they'll probably let you know, like, yeah, it wasn't as rosy um, how you think it is. But yeah. She also had the nerve to say, like, you know, she's not racist because her uh, niece and nephew are are half black. Oh, my God. Stop. I'm going to stop you right there. I'm going to stop you right there. First of all, they ain't got nothing to do with you. Exactly. You ain't even create them. Uh, But still, you can still be racist or a bigot Uh, and have sex with people of different races. Like, come on, y'all. Yes, that that (laughs) needs to end. But I guess we're not talking about that today. Let's stay on immigration, I guess. (laughs) But uh, I quiz. What year do you think the U.S. Border Patrol was created? The Border Patrol? Um, hmm, My guess would probably, I don't know, I'm going to just throw it out there and say 1930. Okay, you're close. You're close. Okay. It was established in 1924 okay. to crack down. Yeah, to crack down on illegal immigrant crossings from Mexico and Canada. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the conversations we're having now about, quote, illegal immigration, like, okay, we're in the 2020s now. It's like a, more than a hundred year old conversation um, because mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure the the crossings were happening before 1924. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think it's important to understand how these laws impact the social fabric 
because like even we just talked about Italians, Irish, etc. You know, this is how gangs were created and for, for uh, there was formation of these things. You know, there were white gangs well before there were these black gangs that seemed to only make up uh, the, I guess, the illustrations on the news. But a lot of it has to do with exclusion, uh, it's systemic and institutional exclusion. And then you have these subcultures kind of develop. And we've seen it since, you know, these harsh immigration practices and uh, the way they treated folks from these other countries. And then even things we talk about when they start to racialize it and become people of color and then gang involvement, et cetera, it just has a lot to do with just exclusion. It's this mm-hmm. cause and effect thing that mm-hmm. I think we don't talk about. We just see gangs and be like bad. But we never ask the question like, well, why do they exist in the first place? And nine times out of 10, it's because we're excluding them from a lot of the things you need to succeed in this country. Agreed. And, you know, we'll probably hit on this later because, uh, of course, the U.S. did change uh, the policies around quotas that focus less on race and more on uh, like family connections and work. But Mm -hmm. because of the family connections, who do you think was able to get those visas because they have been migrating for so long now? Like, Mm -hmm. So we'll get to that. But um, like starting in the 19 like 40s, when you think about like World War Two, and this really gets into the role of the U.S. government in creating uh, the immigration, quote, crisis that we have now is that. So the U.S. had to fill labor shortages during World War II. And so, you know, that's when we see women, you know, starting to work. Uh, One of my favorite movies called A League of Their Own. Women even got their own baseball league. Um, Mm -hmm. But the U.S. government also created something called the Brocero Program, um, which allowed Mexican agricultural workers to enter the United States temporarily um, to work in agriculture and farms. And so the way this worked is um, they were giving these temporary visas to work on farms. It, from everything I've read, it was just very easy to cross the border. Even when they crossed illegally, if they got rounded up, they would literally take them to the border, make them step on the Mexico side and then step back on the other side and just give them like a Brocero visa. It was, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> it was that easy. You know what I'm saying? Um, because so I think Trump recently made some comments about like President Eisenhower and how, you know, he oh, uh, amped up uh, enforcement and, you know, he was able to reduce illegal immigration. And there is uh, it was called Operation WB. I won't use the word because it is a racial uh, slur or ethnic slur against uh, Mexicans. Uh, but it was Operation WB and it was supposedly like this enforcement thing, but what what I read is all they would do is, yeah, they would round them up, take them to the border, make them step on a Mexico side, and then just give them these temporary visas to come back and work. Mm. That's how they got, that's how they lowered the illegal immigration by just increasing legal immigration. I'm saying they were here legally, yeah. It makes, <laughs> it makes sense. <laughs> it makes sense, right? Uh, I think with the stigma of illegal immigration is such a, it's, it's like, ah, uh, it's so nasty. Just because you're undocumented doesn't mean you're a bad person, right? It's like uh-huh. the, the connection, but it was that simple. If you want to fix it, then just make people 
make it easier for people to become citizens. Yeah. And I think one of the biggest things is when you look historically at how easy it was or how these nations kind of depended on each other for labor to, you know, it was interdependent and it was really easy, but I think the Brocero program ended in like the early 1960s. And then what do you think happened? Yeah, well, they probably began to criminalize them again or <laughs> exclude them. Yeah, they began criminalizing it or, or making it illegal. But do you think that these workers who have been earning a living off of this program since the 1940s were just going to stop coming? Oh, yeah, of course not. Do you think the and they just leave farmers, after being here for 20 years? <laughs> yeah. Do you think the farmers were going to stop using them? Nope, of course not. Okay. So, like, I just feel like... Th- This is an example of how the U.S. creates the circumstances that lead to uh, some of the dynamics we have now of people crossing the border to make a living. Easily Mm -hmm. make a living. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, a lot I think and kind of what I like about, um, you know, the Bracero program. And it's very interesting when you look at some of the details of it, of like the requirements. And uh, one of the things that I find interesting is that like the provisions that the U.S. had was that, you know, it was like a lot of like fair labor practices Mm -hmm. (laughs) like the worker had to be paid in full the full salary that they agreed upon and they couldn't like the employers couldn't deduct anything um they uh uh, uh, the contracts had to be written in spanish so that they could Mm -hmm. fully understand it It couldn't be taken advantage of Mm -hmm. Um, wages paid to the workers shall be the same as those paid for similar work to other agricultural laborers so they couldn't pay them any less um and so it was just just interesting you know how they also not just like say come over here but we are going to treat you fairly as we would treat our own I'm like, well, what happened <laughs> between then and now, right? But a large part of it is because I think the U.S. had to, because we were in a shortage, we had to also make it um, uh, lucrative or appealing to those folks who were coming over, right? Enticing, like, yo, mm-hmm. you're going to make money, you're going to be treated fairly, there's not going to be much for you to worry about. Yeah. Yeah, unfortunately, it it did. Um, and, and it seemed like a really cool program. Um, and it allowed uh, because under our current like quota system, which uh, well, so there was one that was passed in like 1990. But when we think about our current system, it was actually enacted about 1965, which a cool fact is what do you think contributed to uh, the passage of immigration reform that de-emphasized race in the quota system? Uh, not sure. What was happening in the 1960s? That oh, the civil, the civil rights? Yeah, yeah. Oh, so that played a role. Okay, I see what you're Yeah, so like, you know, <laughs> you know African-Americans were fighting against, you know, discrimination based on race. I, I can't say that they were actually lobbying for it, but when you think about the Civil Rights Act of 1965, you think about all the legislation uh, that African-Americans were lobbying for that pushed back against using race as a basis for discrimination, how could you have an immigration quota system that essentially discriminated based on race? Yeah. 
That didn't make no sense. So yeah, cool. No that's a cool fact that about cool. how you know African Americans paved the way for <laughs> paved the way. Yeah, yeah. To help everybody else with their injustices, and you know, and and, and this should go without saying, but I mean, it's, of course, although this was a program, they still, you know, Mexicans that were coming over were still experiencing racism and stuff the like. It wasn't like. You know, white folks just had them open, welcomed with open arms and the government tried their best overall. But um, they still, especially in places like Texas, when I was reading about this, were still like no Negroes, no dogs, no Mexicans like on their signs. You know, similar things that we all experience. Um, There's still pushback. But again, uh, employers, farmers, agriculture, we needed them uh, because we were at war and a lot of our labor force was overseas and so it made sense and like you said this is why a lot of women entered the workforce and of course we we kind of uh made remove some of the barriers for for immigration to make sure we can have you know some assistance with that mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um but then we start like moving into so you know i think there was a increase in like uh, unauthorized immigration following the end of the Bracero program but as we move into like the new quota system uh which emphasize family connections and um work base um like educational related visas like there are very limited visas for people who do not have a certain level of education. So you think about the Brocero program, it allowed agricultural workers who may have had lower levels of education. Well, you ended that and put in an immigration system that one favorite people who already had sponsors in the U.S., which because of the past system was primarily white, who gets to come. But then you also, the second criteria or the second major, you know, type of visa is like work and education related, um, which then limits who can come based on educational levels. And Mm -hmm. yeah, Mm -hmm. uh, that also provides an incentive for people who can easily cross the border and don't have um, the educational background to secure certain types of visas. It, it, It made it more appealing. Yeah, the U.S. really tried to make it sure that if you were going to come here, we're getting the cream of the crop from other countries, right, is the idea. Mm-hmm. Um, which, again, and I think this also stems to some of the, the racialized aspects because other countries have racism as well, access. So those folks who are, can get education or get access to these resources and succeed, or more likely it's easier for them to come to the country if they're more white presenting, if that's something that in their country helps them succeed, uh, then of course that's who we'll see start coming over into this country, right? Um, Mm -hmm. And so it's still almost racialized in a way, right? Even though it's not um, exclusively or explicitly said in, uh, you know, the language, it can still act that way once you start putting certain kind of parameters on, then it's going to be a certain type of folk that are more likely to make it over. And we know that racism is like a global phenomenon Uh, Mm -hmm. talk about the African diaspora and the like so yeah and then also another thing so you know although like race isn't the thing it the quota system still limits people based on like nationality so um there's this list uh that we will link where it talks about why the immigration system is broken and so you know although they don't use race there's still quotas on nationalities and so um, depending on where you're migrating from, if lots of people try to come from your country, 
the wait times are going to be longer. It's going to be like more difficult to get a visa um, because of that versus if it's a lower percentage of people trying to come from your country, uh, the wait times won't be as long. Mm. Workers without college degrees only get 5,000 green cards, I think, in a year. Just think about, I think, more than a million people probably immigrate a year. So like 5,000? 5,000? Yeah, see? Is that that, like, uh, yeah, that's not good. That kind of elitist aspect of immigration. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) So, like, moving toward the 80s, um, and I'll let you kind of pick up here, another major U.S., like, governmental policy uh, that is shaping current immigration trends is NAFTA, the North American Free Trade Agreement. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, NAFTA, you know, NAFTA has a lot of implications about what we see today when it comes to immigration and even the most latest uh, uh, trade agreement, which was passed by the Trump administration, bipartisan, which we'll talk about in a little bit, is another kind of derivative of NAFTA. And so what NAFTA stands for again is the North American Free Trade Agreement. Uh, although it was put into action by, well, it started, it was ne- the negotiations began with George H.W. Bush and then uh, went into effect under President Clinton. It kind of had its beginnings, like Dav said, in the 80s with President Ronald Reagan um, because he passed what is known as the Trade and Tariffs Act. Mm-hmm. And it pretty much gave uh, the president special authority to negotiate free trade agreements more quickly. Uh, the idea was really to uh, lower the barriers between Canada and the U.S. primarily was the main focus part, not even uh, uh, when Reagan started it, uh, Mexico was not a part of the plan. And then when George H.W. Bush came along, he said, OK, we have Canada started. And he talked to the president of, of, of Mexico, uh, which was President Selena. And he said, OK, let us work with you as well. And we can have both of our borders, um, you know, have better commerce between and trade agreements between both facts. And so that's how it became both countries. Um, so, you know, Bush started and then it went into effect in the Clinton administration, NAFTA. And so this is also like, even though it happened in the Clinton administration, they weren't the ones that really created it. But then I remember when Hillary was on running and stuff like that, it kept coming up, coming up NAFTA and all this kind of stuff. Again, Hillary was just the first first lady. So it's all confusing how she... And it started well. Like her husband shouldn't even really be taking full responsibility for this. Oh, uh, but she had to keep defending like NAFTA and it's like, yo, she shouldn't have to deal with this at all. I was the Which, first lady. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. I feel like she should have just said that a lot more. Um, like, I, I didn't, my name isn't signed on any of these things you're talking about. Uh, but anyway, NAFTA's purpose, again, was to, with this agreement between Canada and Mexico, was to again, remove barriers to make trade more easy to cross the border between both places, uh, promote conditions of fair competition. Uh, so we really try to get really like create, create, create or use North America as this commerce that we can actually expand globally as well. That if we work well together with the countries to our neighboring countries to the north and the south, that'll make it really easy for us to have job expansions, import exports, etc. Um, was the idea. So it's supposed to be like this friendly agreement. Um, some of the things that they, the goals of it was to 
increase investment opportunities in the territories of the parties, provide adequate and effective protection and enforcement of intellectual property rights, create effective procedures for the implementation and application of agreement uh, for this joint administration, and establish a framework uh, for like regional cooperation, et cetera, so that, you know, it can keep moving forward over time. Mm-hmm. Um, you have anything you want to say about NAFTA before I move forward? I just want to... Um, well, my stuff is mostly just based on like, you know, the unintended consequences okay. of NAFTA. So I don't know if you have more to say just about the policy itself. Before yeah. So I'll talk that. about a couple more things about the policy. Um, uh, so, you know, ha- what has NAFTA accomplished since it started in, in 1994? Uh, um, is there... Essentially, there's been moderate gains. Um, you know, NAFTA has kind of multiplied the trade between the three countries about 3.5 times higher than it was uh, before it started. Um, NAFTA has lived up to its aims in some fashion, increasing the U.S.-Mexican trade to $481.5 billion uh, and Canada totaling $518 billion. And so that's essentially a... Uh, 255% increase between Mexico and the U.S. and a 63% increase between Canada and the U.S. So it seems that, uh, you know, for some reason, we could talk about this a little bit, definitely the U.S. gained a lot more uh, from Mexico, from adding Mexico onto the deal than adding Canada. And I would say that Canada was, uh, Canada's very independent and um, they were a little bit more, uh hard nosed or tough negotiators with the NAFTA. They weren't, they made sure that they weren't getting taken advantage of. And so a lot of the guidelines and limitations were like, yeah, we're going to compromise, but our people are still going to be good first. And the U.S., we're watching, you're not going to just use us. Um, so a lot of the stuff in the NAFTA agreement really, uh, you know, Canada doesn't have a lot of leniency, but with Mexico, some other things can be said. And uh, just quickly with the economy, uh, and this is one of the kind of the biggest points of conversation. Um, it was supposed to have this huge boost in the economy, but uh, I think NAFTA has only benefited, I think the US GDP of about 0.5%, which is about $80 billion. Mm-hmm. And I think it was supposed to be, I can't remember the exact number, but it was supposed to be projected to be way higher than that as far as how many jobs it would actually increase or give because of it. And so um, that's been one of the major, especially con- contemporarily talking about uh, the issues of NAFTA, and it hasn't been as successful as people would have liked. Yeah, you know, that's what I was thinking in terms of like when you talked about the comparisons between U.S., Mexico and Canada and who got what. You know, when I was reading about this, I was like, dang, Mexico kind of got shafted a little bit because mm-hmm. it seems like the U.S. was able to, you know, move businesses there, move their products there, just move a bunch of things there and profit off of it. But the workers, the farmers, you know, the manufacturers in Mexico kind of got hurt by it all. So uh, one thing they talked about was like corn. I think before NAFTA, Um, I think the Mexican government, the tariffs, I guess, on corn were high so that farmers made um, made enough or a lot of money on it. Mm -hmm. But of course, like I think the cost of tortillas were low. So the poor people in the country could 
eat well. Um, but after NAFTA, um, all those cornfields we used to ride through in, in the Midwest, Ty, mm-hmm. all that corn started getting transported to Mexico. Mm-hmm. And it was less expensive to buy this U.S. corn than it was to produce their own corn in Mexico. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So people got put out of business. Yes. Um And I think they also said when it came to like uh, manufacturing also like decline. So like Mexican manufacturers who used to be protected by tariffs were driven out of business by like less expensive, higher quality merchandise that just kind of flowed into the country. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. it kind of like it's it was a bunch of stuff going into Mexico, but it seemed like stuff stopped coming out of it. Yeah, yeah, I think um, that's one of the biggest things, especially when we talk about uh, Mexican farmers. Uh, yeah, they were put out of business. The government, uh, uh, part of it, uh, the government began. U.S. government began to subsidize U.S. farmers, so paying for a portion of the cost, et cetera, giving them money to create corn and corn-based products, et cetera, uh, because and now because of these boundaries or borders dropped, gates dropped or whatever you want to say that allowed us to trade more easily between the countries. Uh, the U.S. Saw, saw this as an opportunity to now, you know, compete with what Mexico was known for, which was their agricultural businesses and, and farming. And because of that, we took a lot of the jobs of people who weren't already making a lot of money, but they were making enough that their family can eat and be successful. And so when that's taken away, well, what are they now left to do? Um, and there's one article I was looking at. It said that about 20 million Mexicans, American, as a result of this, uh, were living in what is known as food poverty, uh, mm-hmm. uh, where 25 percent of the population does not have enough access to even basic food. And one fifth of the Mexican children suffer from malnutrition. Um, so we're talking about how this trade agreement really, because even with this little farming situation, really put a lot of Native Mexicans in extreme hunger and deprivation Mm -hmm. and and the children were suffering. And so naturally what is left to do, right? (laughs) If you're a parent and you see your family starving and there's no other way for you to make money in your own country, then what can you do, right? Go to where the money is being made. Um, Mm -hmm. And if you're already good at farming and farming corn in particular, if you've been doing that for generations and there's a market for that in the U S well, let me go, cross this border and participate in there. And now I'm making that money and sending it back home to my family. So now that my children can at least eat. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's the thing. Also, a lot of the companies that began to set up shop in Mexico did. So I think probably like within 20 miles of the border. And, you know, I was just reading and it was like, OK, I can work here. 20 miles close to the border or I can cross the border and make four times more. Yeah, so like yeah. The wages were still depressed. So it's like mm-hmm. you, you cannot deprive people of wages, of food, of all of these things, like your business practices and the way you're running your partnerships with other governments. You're, you're driving people to your country, although you say you don't want them there. Mm hmm. Yep. I mean, that's also <laughs> a huge problem. Uh, and I think um, 
you know, and this is a part of the new agreement, which we'll talk about in a second. But another consequence of the NAFTA program has to do with the environment because of this new competition and Mexico's agricultural based businesses trying to keep up. They begin to use more fertilizers and chemicals, which really began to destroy the land and create a lot of pollution. Um, mm. So even a lot of those rural farmers who use the land to make income began to not even be able to use that land anymore because these corporations, whatever, were destroying their own land. Right? Uh, so it's like, yo, I can't even try to make other things or try to keep up because they're trying to chemically, you know, induce things or what have you to have the crops go faster and mess up the land, uh, which was a huge issue too. So uh, it's a lot of stuff, man. Yeah. It's an after agreement. Yeah, I agree. Um, and I think it was like celebrated like 20 years, I think in 2014 or something like that. And like you said, there was just literally uh, a month or so ago, because we're in a new year, a month or so ago, mm-hmm. um, new legislation, the Canadian American something, the US Mexican Canadian agreement or something like that was just passed, right? Yeah, yeah. And that's a big proponent of one of the major talking points for like Trump and them is because of what happened uh, and why Trump has kind of been on Mexico's back is because NAFTA, one of the issues with NAFTA is that many, like you said, many of the U.S. corporations and factories move their manufacturing plants to Mexico. Um, And so that put a big dent as far as the labor force and job opportunities here in the U.S. because U.S. jobs were lost as a result. And so um, uh, one of the that's one of the big reasons why Donald Trump and him wanted to renegotiate NAFTA because they felt like we need to put more jobs back on U.S. soil. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, like you said, um, I think it was kind of introduced in April and was passed uh, this past defen- uh, December. Um, it's called the U.S. Mexican Canada Agreement, uh, and it's U.S. MCA. And it's what a lot of people are calling it. It's just NAFTA 2.0. <laughs> um, and it's just I don't I, I, I don't know why they didn't. They changed the name, but it's pretty much NAFTA in a lot of ways. Um, did you what did you notice when you looked it up or? Um, just that, like, so for instance, it seems like it's just focused on trying to what they call, I guess, a trade blocks or trying to keep things just within like this trade block to either bring more jobs here. Mm -hmm. Um, like for instance, the auto industry, um, you know, requiring that 75% of automotive components be produced within like this three nation block. And that's Mm -hmm. like up from the NAFTA's 62.5%. Um, and, and just things like that. I think, um, what the block workers inside the trade block, um, will earn like at least 16 an hour mm-hmm. or 40% of auto content be made by workers inside the trade block who earn $16 an hour. So it, it looks like they're trying to like keep, I guess, jobs between the three. I'm mm-hmm. interested to see how it's going to, considering that NAFTA didn't necessarily be- benefit Mexico. I'm, I'm trying to, I'm still trying to digest like how I think that's going to work. Yeah, from some of the things that I saw, um, I can't remember where that one article is. And I'll talk about that in a second. But I think it was largely the fact that um, Mexico still out of the three countries 
come up as the the losers, right? They're talking about winners and losers. I think the article was talking about, um, and it said that you know Mexico was pretty much forced to do a lot. Uh, in this article, I'm looking at it's from the Washington Post, and it's just talking about how um, they had to give up the most in the negotiations of the three nations. Uh, the economy is technically in a recession, and Trump kept hitting them, talking about these tariffs and all this other kind of trade agreements, uh, and they really didn't have any other options. Um, so they kind of got the lesser end of the deal when it comes to certain things. The full effect, no one really knows yet. Uh, <laughs> but I think because of even how they had to approach this negotiation process, it seems like they didn't get a lot out of it, which means much might not change uh, for, you know, the country of Mexico in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. Um, Another thing that, you know, takeaway from this new agreement is uh, a few, there's a few takeaways, but um, I guess we talk about Mexico specifically Uh, for some reason, this is, I found interesting USMCA, requires Mexico to change its laws to make it easier for workers to unionize um, in this country. But the reason for that is because Trump is wants to make it less attractive for U.S.-based companies to move their factories to Mexico because the reason they were doing that is because they were able to have cheaper labor. Mm-hmm. And so now they want Mexico to allow their workers to unionize so that the U.S. countries will have to stay here <laughs> and there's no change in the money. And so that's that's messed up, right? Like, yeah. Wow. That is, that is like one of those like backhanded deals, like, oh, you're, you know, fighting for this unionization, but for the purpose of ensuring businesses aren't going there. Yes. Yes. And and so even Democrats and U.S. labor unions insisted on tougher enforcement on Mexico to follow these labor union laws. So it's like on surface value of surface look, it seems like, oh, they're doing this. This is a good thing. But the reason why they're doing it is so that they can keep the jobs here in the U.S., and so now you're going to have Mexico with all these unions that can demand more higher wages, but no jobs, <laughs> uh, which is which is messed up. Um, so I, this is the thing, like you can never really fully trust everything you hear when it comes to this Trump administration. I just feel like there's always some kind of like underlying incentives or things in the fine print that people are already looking into. Um and the, the big thing that the Democrats wanted to push and why this is like a bipartisan agreement has to deal with um, pharmaceutical companies. I think Trump really wanted to have like this I'm fully not fully sure exactly what it is. I'm trying to read up on it, but it was like giving pharmaceutical companies kind of these extra levels of protection as far as intellectual property. Yeah. Um, and so Democrats say that this decade long provision, like if you did something and it didn't work, but then you found out it did work and they don't, they can like use it for 10 years without any kind of scrutiny, if you will. And um, the Democrats wanted to kind of fix that because, uh, because Trump, you know, wanted it. And so they got that in there somehow, really not sure how that's going to affect certain things. And another big thing that the Democrats wanted was um, things dealing with like climate change and environmental protections. Cause like I said, because of the comp- competition, Mexico destroyed a lot of their land. And so now there are protections in place to protect from uh, wildlife and pollution. But again, they are making it so like they're putting a lot of this on Mexico. Like yeah. they're going to be overseeing how Mexico 
handles their land and pollution, making sure they're not illegal fishing anymore and all this other kind of stuff. I'm like, yo, why are we just putting it? There's three countries involved. Why does, you know, Mexico have this extra level of scrutiny when it comes to like these environmental protection protections? Because I'm sure the U.S. ain't the best at protecting our land either. Yeah, it sounds very paternalistic. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like we're going to keep an eye on you so you don't mess it up. <laughs> Uh, so it's, it's, it's a lot here. I guess the only, one of the good things that I see from it is that this deal has to be reviewed in six years. Mm. Um, so, uh, so that's good. Um, that mean like, you know, it's a short amount of time where if things aren't looking right or things are happening, they can review it and then make adjustments as necessary. And I think more policies need to actually start doing that. Uh, instead of just having like this indefinite, like we're going to put it in place and never review it until we know it's messed up people for like two generations. It's like, no, let's see how it's doing in six years. There might be some adjustments made so we can now have a a window of opportunity to make those adjustments. So, And the good thing is even if Trump wins, it will be reviewed under the next president. Yes, yes, which is also (laughs) a very good thing as well. Um, So, yeah, the USMCA, NAFTA 2.0 doesn't really address, right, some of the underlying things that we talked about of taking labor away from uh, Mexican farmers, why they're migrating here to feed their families. It didn't seem to address that at all as far as what's going on exactly in Mexico and their labor force and why people are coming here. So I don't see that trend, um, you know, changing uh, yeah. for the reasons of why they're coming here because we just didn't touch on, touch on that whatsoever. Yeah. Yeah. I, I thought it was actually interesting. I wonder, and this is a conversation that, you know, we'll have to have because in the 1980s, there was amnesty for uh, people who had migrated illegally. Um, I think in 2000, there was like a, a late amnesty. I think it was for people who had been previously eligible, but were denied and they were able to apply again. And, you know, Obama had DACA, which was not amnesty. Um, and there's been increasing fights on how do we create a pathway to citizenship for the people who, you know, within recent years have come here um, without documentation. And I just wonder what that conversation is going to be like over the next Mm, decade. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think that's interesting. And I think these should be more informed decisions. And I guess we can start talking about that a little bit about some of the the myths and misconceptions of um, immigration, because I think that's important. I just want to really go back really quick. We talked about the pharmaceutical thing. And I, and so exactly what it is, is that the, um, <clears throat> uh, the USMCA deal now gives uh, the certain type of drug known as biologics, because mm-hmm. essentially they used they had 10 years of exclusivity, exclusivity, which means that when they had it out there, companies were allowed to um, sell this drug for 10 years without any kind of competition. Mm-hmm. Um, so what the Democrats did was remove that. And so now they can no longer, it's more competition and therefore it'll bring, as far as this specific drug, biologics, not, don't know what they are, but it allowed to be more competitive pricing and bring the, the cost of those drugs down. Um, so it, it kind of hits big pharma companies in that way where now they can't just control the market like they did with with this particular type of drug. Yeah, we definitely need some more competition and more regulation. And I will say that is one thing about Mexico, though. If you need some prescriptions, all you got to do is cross the border and like you don't even need a prescription. 
Mm. You can go to the little pharmacies. <laughs> <laughs> Get what you need, hot back. Buy whatever you want, whatever. Yeah, <laughs> yeah most, a little bit more expensive, but yeah, most countries are like that. Are pretty, you know, it's easy to you get what you need uh, to keep living and keep working. And yeah. the U.S. likes to be. It's all about profit, profit, profit here. Okay, so you know, with that said, I guess let's kind of talk about some of the myths and misconceptions that might inform our conversations about amnesty and immigration enforcement and control over the next few decades. Yeah, for sure. I think um, uh, the biggest one that we hear a lot, right, is that uh, undocumented or immigrants are taking jobs from folks in the U.S. and and really just like using, taking our money and not giving back and all this other kind of stuff, which is just not true in a lot of ways. Um, one of the biggest ones, and I guess I can start with this myth, is that immigrants take more from the U.S. government than they actually contribute. And the fact is that immigrants actually contribute more in tax revenue, and they're less likely to actually want or take government benefits, um, which is important. I think what's more important, because you talk about this amnesty stuff and also how children are affected, is that... Um, First-generation immigrants cost the government more than native-born Americans, right? About $1,600 per person annually. But the second-generation immigrants are among the strongest fiscal and economic contributors in the U.S., meaning that their offspring are really contributing to this economy and making a lot of money and pushing our country forward. And, and they contribute about $1,700 per person per year instead of taking $1,600 person. And all other native-born Americans, <clears throat> including third immigration immigrants, contribute just $1,300 per year on average when we talk about taxes and tax revenue. And so this goes into the whole thing of like, uh, DACA and, and the DREAM Act and all this kind of stuff for protecting the children of migrants. I think it's very, as far as we're just talking about capitalism and I guess financial reasons, why wouldn't we do that if they're actually exceeding native born Americans in their contributions to this country? Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. I, I just, this is kind of one of those facts, not feelings discussions in the sense that I think we, I think people who might be experiencing immigration in their community see certain things. Uh, you know, they might see the people in the jobs that maybe others used to occupy, but they don't see the numbers behind what's going on, if that makes any sense. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I think that's why it's really important to add numbers to that. I did not know that. But, you know, even if there's like a cost, their labor is exceeding the yeah. cost. Yeah. 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 <laughs> For sure. Um, go ahead. No, I was about to say, do you have any other interesting myths? Um, another one, too, is that uh, that we hear this all the time. Uh, immigrants are taking American jobs. Uh, and there's a huge article in The Atlantic called Does Immigration Harm Working Americans? Uh, and pre the article goes back uh, and interviews a lot of top economists and all the economists pretty much said, no, it doesn't. Uh, most economists agree that in spite of being a very big part of the labor force, immigrants have not come to cost other American jobs nor wages. Like you said before, right, this idea of or the reality of who 
needs the jobs are those who are on college educated and those who don't have high school diplomas. And so what a lot of research finds is that the only per- only people in our country who are in competition for uh, jobs with immigrants are those who do not have a high school diploma because mm-hmm. they qualify for the same kind of jobs and the same kind of labor. Um, but outside of that, if you have a high school diploma, which again, majority of Americans do, um, they are not competing and taking any of your jobs. Uh, and more like more than likely, it was also a big issue is that the if you're ha- especially in our country for people of color, if you don't have a high school diploma, you're actually more likely, of course, to end up in jail than actually having a job too yeah, or in so, prison, so. <laughs> being incarcerated. Yeah. Um, and so there's just not as much competition. So all that rhetoric that we hear of, oh, they're taking our job, taking our job, they're actually taking many jobs that most Americans don't want to work anyway as well. Um, so, I, you know, again, debunking that whole narrative of that we're competing with them for jobs is just, again, a major lie. Yeah, yeah. And I'm I am happy you add the caveat about like it is like the low wage. So in cuz I'll be honest, I come from a like a lower socioeconomic background and the people that I know growing up did have those jobs, but also they were the uh, either just had a high school diploma or maybe or maybe didn't. And mm-hmm. that is where I see a lot of the turnover in jobs. But mm-hmm. hopefully we are all like moving forward in terms of education. Um, I think my having done some research on this, what I find sad and I think. I would hope other Americans find sad is that these people are being exploited because of their educational um, mm-hmm. levels and you don't want to be exploited like that. And it's, yeah, yeah. Um, probably even paying some people like less than what they would pay American. And it's not necessarily undercutting them, but it's just like exploitation um, because of the lower levels of education, especially for those who uh, have to migrate um, without documentation. Yeah, I mean, I, I think even as we're talking, right, we just see the, how the, how this systemically works, where if you have a college degree, right, you're already privileged, it's easier for you to become a citizen. If you don't even have a high school diploma, it's probably going to be nearly impossible or maybe take years for you even to be qualified to become a citizen with only, like you said, 5,000 <laughs> uh, given out of you having a green card to come over here. And so that naturally means that more of the people who are coming here illegally or undocumented are going to be those folks who are really already um in drastic situations, right? Uh, mm-hmm. And and those are the ones we target and stigmatize in this country. And we're not really looking at the reasons is like, yo, why are they coming here for work, right? I think that's just a big question. Why? Why? I'm pretty sure if they could, they would want to stay in their own country with their family and live the lives that they want. And I think sometimes we just over overlook that fact of like, oh, they're just coming here and they want to do all these things. But I'm pretty sure none of us would want to just get up and move to a different country. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, there would have to be some real reasons like, oh, if your family is starving, then I'm sure a lot more of, of U.S. folks would be moving to other places uh, to get out of there. I mean, many folks were just talking about that when Trump got in office. Right. That was enough to have people contemplating. Now, think about if your family is starving. Right. Uh, uh, what would you be willing to do to get out of there? So. Mm-hmm. And, you know, one uh, thing that I hear a lot of people saying about 
immigration is just like, do it the right way. My family did it the right way. Why don't you? Mm-hmm. Well, one issue is that one, like like we mentioned before, the quota system has not been updated since either 1990 or 1991. Uh, Back in 1990, I believe like wait times were like drastically lower. Um, I think uh, I know wait times now, people are waiting for decades. So like the people whose green cards were approved in 2018 have been waiting for those for about two decades. And so that means the people who are applying for green card or trying to enter the system to get a green card, depending on how old they are now, might be dead before they actually get it. Mm, Goodness gracious. And that's partly because... Uh, there's like a, I think there's a two step process. The first is the sponsor has to be approved and then the immigrant has to be approved. But like we said, what quotas like based on nationality? So say um, it is a country where a lot of people immigrate. You are waiting in line behind everybody else and their potential spouses who will get approved when they do. So it's not like a, oh, let me just sign up for papers and I'll get here. And a lot of times people are trying to join their family. So it's kind Mm -hmm. of it's imperative to do it now. It's not like I I don't know, but it's just like am I? Our immigration system is broken. There's a huge backlog. Uh, another issue is that like, so, you know, there might be temporary workers who have visas and they have children when they come over. As long as the child is under 21, they're able to stay on their parents' paperwork as the parents are waiting in line for their green card to be approved. However, Mm -hmm. as soon as that child turns 21, they are completely dropped from the immigration system. Like they are dropped out of the queue completely. And the Mm. only thing they can do is self-deport or stay here illegally. Mm. Even if they've been here since they were a child. That's crazy. So our immigration system is really broken. It really is. It really is. (laughs) It is so hard, man. Um, Yeah, you know, and I think we need to just start having more conversations about the solutions of how to make it better. And mm-hmm. stop stigmatizing folks, because the reality is that most of the folks who are coming here that are undocumented, that overstay visas, that are trying to get here are, are good people. They just want to mm-hmm. work and have a living just like the rest of us. And America is a ginormous country. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we got enough space. And I feel like having a, a greater labor force, creating more jobs is what we want to see. You know, there was this one study I looked at that talked about um, how the actually immigrant uh, places, I think it was a place like uh, they were looking at like Miami, et cetera, that had an uptick in immigration, right? Even mm-hmm. they were undocumented, boosted the economy of those places, right? Because one is that you're working, so you have more people coming in, right? They're now, say you're buying things like toiletries from a local grocery store or whatever. Now you have way more inventory, way more people buying stuff, right? Now your um, store can grow. It can get bigger. Now you can hire more people, right? Because business mm-hmm. is now booming. And this is typically what happens in places that have an uptick in immigration is that actually small businesses benefit and they grow and they actually hire more people 
people and it lowers some of the unemployment rates and things along those lines. Um, so I think uh, there's a like more, way more, when we look at data and statistics, there is way more good that comes from immigration than negative. And like you said, in the very, very beginning of this episode is that our country is uh, based off of immigration and immigrants. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know why all of a sudden this rhetoric now is like it's such a bad thing, but it's mainly because of who uh, is it's immigrating. Common. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's what it's about. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think if we still had those systems in place where it was just people coming from Europe, I don't think there would be any issues. Mm-hmm. Oh, and that is also a myth and misconception that undocumented immigrants are only of like Latino origin or, you know, from like Mexico and other, no, there are plenty of white undocumented immigrants and also some black ones. But because our country has been black and white or been racialized as black and white for so long, if you see a white person, you don't assume one, you might not even assume that they're an immigrant. And if they are, you probably wouldn't even assume that they're illegal. Yep. Yep. That's the or whole, undocumented. Yeah, the whole uh, notion of undocumented is 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 racialized. <laughs> you know, we are not rounding up white folks with accents and being like, "Oh, show me your paperwork." Yeah. Um, which is like, you know, we talked a while back about the Purdue student uh, from from well, he wasn't even he was Puerto Rican. Yeah, right? he was American. <laughs> and and just that alone, like, I need to see your paperwork. I need to see a visa. Like, bro, what? Um, so. Yeah, this country, we definitely are stigmatizing and racializing immigration. Uh, one of the last things I want to talk about, too, is this idea of immigration and crime. Uh, Trump has said repeatedly that more immigrants or undocumented folks will increase crime and crime and they're doing all this stuff. And the reality is that it's just not true. Um, <laughs> in fact, uh, a major article by uh, a dude, guy who was at Purdue with us, Ty Miller. Was he? Would you guys overlap, uh, Dav? What's his name? Ty. No, I'm, I don't I'm not sure if you had. Okay, he might have came right after you left. But Ty Miller, he was there, uh, Purdue. I used to hang with him all the time. We we're in the graduate program together. Him and a professor by the name of Michael Light, who's at the University of Wisconsin. Uh, published his paper in Criminology, uh, which has been cited like crazy all over the place. Um, and what they did is look over twenty past 25 years of data in all 50 states, look at immigration patterns and look at crime rates. Their, their main research question was, done, does undocumented immigration increase violent crime? And what they found was that it does not. In fact, in places that had higher rates of undocumented immigration, mm. it lowers a violent crime. <laughs> um, uh, and so, you know, it's, it, it was all over news. Uh, you know, I have the article in front of me, but it was also on CNN, all that kind of stuff. And so again, goes to show you that a lot of what is being said is not being supported by data. It's these assumptions and this rhetoric that is complete lies and not being supported by any of the facts. And most of the facts from the leading economist in this country, from the leading criminologists in this country are saying that immigration is not not this terrible monster bad thing from the country. Why? Because it's what it's been built off of. And again, Latino, Central American immigrants are not the only people migrating here. Many people from other countries are. And again, they're doing just the same things that mm-hmm. the European immigrants mm-hmm. are doing, right? Uh, and and then it's also funny because if you watch a show like 90 Day Fiance, <laughs> you would even yeah. question a lot of them white immigrants that's coming over here because don't be like nobody black on that show. <laughs> Oh yeah! Ah, oh, that show is a mess. I love the <laughs> I can't stop watching it, but it is a mess for real. Oh my gosh! Oh, uh, oh, yeah. Too funny. 
anything else? I think we covered a lot. Uh huh. I think we covered a lot, and then you know, this was just a conversation to inform. We'll have other conversations with scholars, you know, about immigration uh, within the coming months. So that'll also give some additional perspectives. But you know, I think this was pretty good because I, I think it gave the historical overview and kind of tackled some of those myths and misconceptions. Yes, for sure. And you know, Phil, I like doing these episodes because you know, we learn some things too. You know. Yeah. Yes, yes. It forces us to read. Mm -hmm. Read, read, (laughs) and make sure we come to y'all with some informed (laughs) insights uh, Mm -hmm. instead of just, you know, just talking about our feelings. Like you said, facts over feelings. Yeah. And also, I think it's because... I don't know. I'm probably not the person that naturally like I like politics, but I might not naturally gravitate toward reading anything about no dang on trade deals. But like having to go through and like really think about policy, like because I think that's a growth area, I think, for most most Americans to think beyond like domestic policy and think about like our interactions with other countries. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's a growth area for me. And it's probably a a growth area for most Americans. I know. Yeah, for sure. (laughs) For sure. (laughs) For sure. Uh, And it's just cool having access to this kind of information too in this day and age of information and technology and, and, you know, uh, internet. Uh, Just being able to look up all this stuff and read about it. Um, It's all there, people, right? Like, So we really have no excuse now. Before, back in the day, before the internet, it probably was way harder to get the information for yourself. Uh, If it wasn't in a newspaper or they weren't going in detail about it on the news, it's like, how are you going to really learn about these programs and NAFTA and USMCA and these data and statistics, right, uh, of immigration? Um, But, you know, me and Daph enjoy doing this work and hopefully y'all enjoy listening to it and learning something from it as well. So your good convo on immigration. I think it was mm-hmm. a good episode to start off 2020. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and y'all can be a little more informed when you're listening to these uh, debates and listening to Trump and, and know the real deal when it comes to immigration. And also use this episode as a resource to point people to us, right? To listen to it. If they, if they don't believe you, or you're having this debate, say, hey, check out this BHD episode on immigration where they kind of break it down. And then all we always have the links provided where they can also look at some of the stuff themselves and do their own research. Uh, mm-hmm. um, so we can actually help you in these kind of conversations and debates where you don't have to carry that mantle alone. <laughs> yeah. And also beyond that, like, you know, I'm pretty sure sometimes debates are boring because you might not have a lot of insight into what the people are talking about. So if there are other topics, especially that are relevant to the election or anything else that you like for us to just do a little research on to like point you in a direction to where you can go a little bit further um, and research it yourself. Just let us know. Let us know the topics. Yeah, send us the topics. You know, that's something that Daph and I said we want to start doing for now on our hundredth episode is to start getting some more of just these informative episodes out there. And so the, the more help y'all give us, even if it's just a topic you want us to dive deep into, do it. Hit us up. We'll, we'll look it up and we'll we'll definitely get to it because we enjoy this as well. Um, so that's good. Good advice. Good advice. Well, y'all, good start to 2020. Hope y'all stay with us for the rest of the year and share us around. Um, if you haven't yet, 
Show uh, follow us on social media at BHD Podcast. We're on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Visit our website, blackandhollydangerous.com to keep up with all our latest content. Again, if you have ideas of topics you want us to dive deep into, email us bhdpodcast at gmail.com. And then we'll, you know, we're very responsive. We'd love to hear from you all. So hit us up. Uh, we'll be more than more than happy to to dive deep in those topics. And then after you do that, please go ahead, start 2020 off right for us and review and rate us on iTunes if you haven't did that yet. Uh, and after you do that, even if you don't listen to us on iTunes, you can at least do this. Just share us with your friends, share us with your family, share us with your enemies. And as always, continue to be the oppressor's worst fear. If you're interested in continuing this and other conversations, visit our website, blackandhollydangerous.com to subscribe to our email list, suggest topics, and participate in our discussion forums. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at BHD Podcast. And please don't forget to subscribe and rate our podcast on your favorite platform. And as always, continue to be the oppressor's worst fear.